Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. LMFM Podcasts, brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union, where dreaming of warmer climates becomes a reality with a Cartmacross Credit Union holiday loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or CartmacrossCU.ie. Thursday morning, the 30th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy, says he's very disappointed by the level of homelessness. Charities say there's a risk that we accept this situation to be normality. The minister says while the government should do more and while the challenging situation continues, there has been a reduction in the number of families seeking emergency accommodation. In fact, 320 families have been able to move out of emergency accommodation this year and have their own homes now. The minister says the government will continue to house people, but unfortunately demand is greater than supply, which meant that there were seven more people in emergency accommodation in April than was the case in March. Officially, 10,378 people are homeless in this country this morning. We'll be discussing this presently with Owen O'Brien, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on housing. But we'll begin this morning by talking about antisocial behaviour, a topic that dominated many of the local election debates and a topic many candidates heard about on the doorsteps. Last night in Trim, a public meeting was held in order to bring about an end to antisocial behaviour in the area and we're joined by local Fine Gael councillor Noel French. Good morning to you. Congratulations by the way on being re-elected and thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, there was a, a good attendance uh, I take it last night. All uh, politicians were invited and indeed members of the Gardaí invited. Uh, what can you tell us? What can I tell you? Um, there was a, a great turnout. There was a, a huge uh, uh, number of people there, which was uh, hugely important because I wanted to show that we have a problem with antisocial behaviour here in Trim, particularly with uh, one particular group uh, of young people. And, and it is only a very small group of young people. The Gardaí came out in force. Um, uh, pun intended. Uh, um, uh, the superintendent was there. She is very proactive uh, in trying to solve this. And uh, I want to show the Gardaí that there was a problem and the size of the problem. You told us and before, I think it's a, a small group of teenagers. Yes, 
it is, except except now they're training in the six and seven year olds into doing uh, being their assistants. So uh, it's spreading down the line. Six and seven year olds. Yeah. What's going on? Well, but what are six and seven year olds doing that's causing so much disruption? That doesn't sound uh, plausible. You get three or four, six or seven-year-olds around you and you see how plausible it is asking you to go into a pub uh, to buy drink for them or uh, go in to get cigarettes for them, uh, which they've done to tourists and visitors in, in the town. Uh, the, it's not the small lads that carry out uh, a lot of the things. They carry out the uh, ones, the innocuous ones, like going, going into supermarkets and, uh, well, one supermarket in particular, uh, and uh, uh, picking up any boxes of sweets or anything like that and bringing them out to their older compatriots. Uh, so, uh, I reckon that's training. Uh, the big lads don't want to do it because they uh, might actually be charged with something. So, they get the younger lads to do it. Right. Uh, and uh, are they drinking and smoking at six and seven years of age? I can't tell you that. Uh, I haven't. I haven't seen that. Uh, I do know they are hassling people. Uh, my big fear, uh, and why I held this meeting at all last night, was we all we have always had uh, anti-social behaviour. We've always had a, a certain small group that went around and created hassles, uh, just enough hassle uh, to annoy people, to really, really annoy people, but not enough hassles to be creating a serious offence. But in recent uh, uh, months, it has turned nastier, and uh, this group uh, has targeted uh, young teenagers uh, from the 14 to 17 years mm. of age, vulnerable, and attacking them. Uh, they have been uh, videoing some of those and putting it up on social media. Uh, I have a number of young people who say they're afraid to walk the streets of Trem in daylight. I don't think that's acceptable. The Gardaí agree that it's not acceptable. The Gardaí are stepping up their foot patrols in uh, the uh, in the town. The uh, Gardaí have had limited resources. They've uh, five new Gardaí uh, this year over last year. Uh, we need more Gardaí. Uh, the Mead uh, area is the least policed area of the whole country, less guard resources than any other area in the country. Um, they're gradually picking up, but we need more Gardaí. The meeting last night was to highlight that there was mm. a, 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 an antisocial behaviour problem. We did that. The other reason for the meeting last night was to highlight the need to report any incidents to the Gardaí, because incidents were not being reported to the Gardaí through fear. Mm. Young people were afraid or their parents were afraid in case they would be targeted. Right. Uh, what, what exactly are they afraid of? I, I mean, I, I think it beggars belief that a public meeting needs to be held because of the behaviour of six and seven-year-olds uh, as well as the behaviour of some older children in a, a town the size of Trim. Well, sure, you said it there already in your introduction that this has come up on the doorstep. Mm at the local election and it has it doesn't beggar it 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 doesn't beggar belief it is it is a crazy situation to to have allowed to happen and develop the difficulty the Gardaí face as well is uh, there is um 
limitations with, within the law with regard to dealing with children. It's, uh, you can't make the parents responsible for it. Uh, you have to, there's a whole lot, a long process you have to go through uh, with children. And obviously, it's right that there are protections there for children, mm-hmm. and it is right that there are protections uh, there to ensure that uh, children are given every single chance. No, but hold on a second. I mean, there are protections there for children as there should be, so that the children are protected uh, and that they're not being abused or uh, put in danger by other people. Uh, but no, that doesn't. I mean, but, but, that, mean but, is, but that. But if, just if just just to finish the point, if I can. Oh, but that that doesn't uh, create a, a situation that makes it okay to neglect children because if children are behaving the way you outlined to us this morning, surely there's a, a question of neglect. Uh, not according to the law. Uh, Tusla cannot get involved in a situation like like that is what uh, we found out last night. Uh, um, yes, parents very often uh, can contribute to this and the Gardaí have engaged with parents that are willing to engage uh, and that are very concerned about their kids. Mm. But uh, uh, some parents aren't willing to engage. Uh, you can't force people to engage. Uh, uh, again, as I say, the law is there uh, to protect vulnerable children, uh, but some there it can be exploited uh, by uh, having loophole. But not it's not a loophole. Mm. It's just uh, uh, groups are young people are protected. Uh, that's it, full stop. And if you uh, you either give that as uh, a blanket protection, or you can't go specifically saying, "Oh well, all the good ones are protected, but the bad ones aren't." Hmm. But you're saying that protection means uh, that uh, they can do whatever they want with impunity, uh, or they can be ordered to do whatever uh, they're told to do. Uh, the the kids, uh, as in as in that they're they're uh, creating hmm. ructions, uh, um, they're they're doing it off their own bat, and uh, unfortunately, they are seeing that uh, it, it is difficult to punish them because of their age. And when uh, other kids then see, oh, well, these kids mm. get away with it, yeah. I- I'll do it as well. Yeah, and, well that makes sense, yeah. Mm. And, and th- that is the problem. It, is, it, it started out with a smaller group. It's now, uh, it's now a larger group. Mm. And, uh, so, we're ne- so we're neglecting these children. Sorry? We are neglecting these children. Uh, apart from uh, the uh, mayhem that ensues from their behaviour, the children themselves are being neglected. Nobody is protecting them from themselves. Nobody is telling them that what they're doing is wrong uh, and that uh, there are, are they consequences. Are, they are being told uh, that uh, these things are wrong. They are being But there are no support. consequences for their actions. Well, that's unfortunately the, the, the situation. It, it seems that uh, they realise that uh, there really are very little or no consequences for their actions. Mm. And that's, that is uh, just the situation. Uh, I'm not happy with it. Uh, nobody is happy with it, but uh, the Gardaí certainly aren't happy with it. Um, um, but, but that's the reality of the situation. The, the, uh, our, uh, we have wrapped ourselves up in politically correct and uh, being laying down laws to protect this, that and the other thing. And unfortunately, people exploit those occasionally.
Okay. And what were people saying from the floor about this? They were very angry. Uh, they were very concerned. They were. Uh, um, uh, they had lots of incidences that they wanted to speak about, but we couldn't allow them go into individual cases. Um, uh, but yes, there was a, a fear there for their uh, young people. Uh, a number of young people spoke, and yes, uh, one of the young people made the exact same point as you just made about mm. what are we doing for these young people. Um, and uh, yes, it it is. Uh, we have compiled a list last night of people who are willing to come together and trying to do something to engage with uh, these young people. We have uh, a fantastic youth club here in the town. We have Involve Youth Club. We have uh, Smart. We have a, a juvenile uh, diversion scheme. Uh, we have uh, Youth Reach. We have all of these uh, groups that are out there already doing great work. And we have a lot of problems by the sounds of it. Very hard uh, to understand, uh, as well, you say, Noel. Yeah. Mm. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank oh, you, Mike. One Thank second. You. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. That's uh, Fine Gael Councillor Noel French. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now back uh, to uh, the latest homeless uh, figures in uh, the country. Owen Murphy, the Minister for Housing, has uh, tried to, to put a, a brave face on all of this, uh, saying that there's been a reduction in the number of families seeking emergency accommodation, uh, that uh, the government has provided housing to 320 families, taking them out of emergency accommodation, and uh, that uh, despite the government's best efforts, the supply continues to be less than the demand, which has resulted in 73 more people in emergency accommodation in the month of April than there was in March. Uh, the Minister has conceded it's a, a very challenging situation and that the government needs to do more. Father Peter McVerry is a Jesuit priest who works with the homeless and joins us now. And thanks as always, uh, Peter, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, the latest official figure is 10,378 people considered to be homeless in this country uh, but I think you'd consider that to be just half the story Yeah, so uh, yeah, it's uh, that figure excludes a lot of people who are actually homeless Uh, it excludes people who are sofa surfing and that's quite a large number of people it excludes people who are uh, living in overcrowded accommodation because they don't want to uh, register as homeless it excludes uh, women and children living in domestic refuges. It excludes those asylum seekers who have been granted asylum but can't uh, find accommodation. So I, I estimate that the figure is probably closer to 15,000. But uh, we don't, I don't want to get caught mm. up in numbers because for every single person and family who becomes homeless, this is a trauma. And it just is going on and on and on, and there is no sign of uh, of any substantial improvement. The government keeps saying two things. First of all, they keep talking about what they have done, and I'm that's fine. Mm. I'm, I'm delighted at what they have done. But my response is that either what they're doing is not effective, <laughs> or what they're doing is not enough and they've got to do more. I think they're running around. They don't know what to do, basically. They're running around like a headless chicken, uh, and every time the figures come out, they promise, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll amend this legislation, or we'll mm. increase the height of apartments. Uh, 
So well, nobody really wants it. to see people in a, a situation like that. Uh, but if you're to tackle it, uh, well, then you've got to put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. And maybe that's what yeah. the government doesn't want to do. And maybe that's what people well, don't want them to do. I mean, we're talking about over 10,000 people who are officially homeless. You say it's up to 15,000. Do they not vote? Do their families and friends not vote? Or is it that the people who do vote don't care? or don't care enough, as the case may be? Well, housing is still uh, an issue that affects a very a minority of people, and until, like, the water charges, it affects more people, and it is going to affect more people because the mortgage arrears are coming down the road over the next 24 months. Mm. Uh, then I, I think it is difficult for people to get uh, very, very worked up about it. The government answer always, and we get the same response month after month after month, is... You know, we have to wait until supply catches up with demand. Now, that's not going to happen for at least five years, if not 10 years. Uh, And we can't wait for supply to catch up with demand. There are empty buildings all around every town, every city in Ireland, every street almost has empty buildings. And we have got to commandeer those buildings. We've got to take them back through compulsory purchase orders. And the other thing we have to do, and the government are not doing and have failed to do, is prevent more and more people coming into homelessness. Mm. The majority of people coming into homelessness, and particularly families, are coming from the private rented sector. They're being evicted because a landlord says they're selling their house. More people coming into homelessness uh, than uh, there are exiting homelessness. Uh, But uh, perhaps... Uh, as I say, it comes down to how much people prioritise it. And I think all of the politicians will tell you that they heard at the doorsteps that people are very concerned about the situation. They don't like the situation. But I don't know if that was reflected in the way that people voted. If you consider that uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael continue to be the biggest parties in this country. Yeah, it's not. It's a real issue. How do we get, uh, how do we put that pressure on government to address the problem? The issue really is on whose side are the government? The government are clearly on the side of the banks. The banks, the government are, the banks want, the the government want house prices to Mm. keep going up because then houses that are in negative equity move into positive equity. When the banks repossess them, they uh, they will get more money for them and their profits will go up. The government are on the side of the big international investment funds, including vulture funds. They gave them huge tax exemptions. Most of the vulture funds pay zero tax on their income, on their capital gains, no corporation tax. They gave them huge uh, tax incentives to come into this country. Uh, and they're on the side of the property owners. I've argued for a long time that we should, for, at least, for a minimum of for about three years, make it illegal for a landlord to evict somebody into, uh, into homelessness. Uh, unless, of course, the tenant is selling drugs or something, and then, of course, they should be uh, evicted. Mm. But in the normal course of events, they should be illegal for three years to evict people into homelessness. Now, that will be an inconvenience for some landlords, but it's not going to bankrupt them. Uh, And the alternative to that is uh, thousands of families experiencing the trauma of, of homelessness. So until the government grasps the uh, fact that, you know, tenants who are struggling to pay the rent uh, and people who are in serious mortgage of rears through no fault of their own, mm. until the government side with those against the, the banks and the big international investment funds, 
uh, uh, we're not going to solve this problem. So you don't believe it's a, a question of wherewithal? You believe uh, that the government could, if it wanted to, move quicker to solve this situation? It's a question of will, and it doesn't have the will to do that because I, I believe it would doesn't suffer. have the yeah. will. It's not mm-hmm. just a question of funding. The government have allocated considerable funds. We need to build social housing. That will cost money. We need to renovate empty buildings. That will cost money. But the much more urgent issue is actually preventing more families coming into homelessness. Focus Ireland, who primarily deal with homeless families, they say they can house one family uh, every day, but there are three families presenting as homeless every day. And until we tackle that imbalance, uh, the problem is going to continue to get worse. Month on month it gets worse. Uh, the worst figures we're ever again. We're almost three years now since rebuilding Ireland, the government strategy to uh, reduce homelessness. We're almost three years. We're three years in July. And the figures just constantly keep going up and up and up. And yet the government keeps saying our strategy is working. Well, any 12-year-old kid could tell them their strategy is now working. Well, the problem continues to get worse. But if we continue at this pace... How long would it take before we get on top of it, do you think? Well, we're not going to get on top of it if we continue at this pace. The big problem, the big elephant in the room coming down the road is 40,000 mortgages in arrears of more than two years. And the central bank estimates that at least half of those are going to be repossessed. Now, if even a fraction of those that are repossessed become homeless... We won't be able to cope. We'll have families living on the streets. We'll have families sleeping in guard stations every night. It will become a regular event. The mortgage arrears coming down the road is the uh, is the nightmare scenario. There is a solution. It's called mortgage to rent. The government don't like it. Uh, it's very restricted in 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 the in in, in who it can. Uh, accept it as mortgage to rent but we've got to expand the mortgage to rent scheme to include most of those mortgages. Because that is a, a, a government scheme. Uh, you're saying though that it should be expanded. Yeah, your income has to be below a very low level. Your value of your house has to be below a certain level and your house has to be in negative equity. With house prices going up as they are all the time and many houses have moved from a negative equity into positive equity and they are not eligible. Uh, so unless the government expand the income limits and the, the value of the house limits uh, and include houses in positive equity, uh, that catastrophe still awaits us coming down the road. Uh, and you believe it'll continue, as has been the case over the last couple of years, uh, to continue to worsen month on month? There is no evidence that any, that is going, that's going to change, unfortunately. Okay. If every month for three years the numbers get worse and government policy does not seem to be able to address it, I don't see any change in policy that would uh, that would make a difference uh, in the short term anyway. Okay, we leave there. Many thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. It's much appreciated, Father Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest who works with the homeless. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. Well, as uh, the dust settles on the election results, uh, it's uh, back uh, to uh, the usual type of issues with homelessness uh, continuing to dominate, as we've been hearing, crime and Brexit also on uh, the agenda. The Public Accounts Committee 
acting unlawfully and indeed uh, the fallout of Maria Bailey uh, making uh, the papers uh, today. Michael Brennan is political editor with uh, the Sunday Business Post and he joins us now. And uh, a very good morning to you, Michael, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. There's much talk again today about Maria Bailey and indeed the meeting that she had with the Taoiseach and what the Taoiseach has been saying to the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party and how the party is not making any official comment about Maria Bailey because uh, they've decided to undertake an internal inquiry. That's right. I think, Michael, that the Taoiseach just wants the story to go away now. The, the classic way of doing that is to set up a review, an inquiry, a commission. In this case, they've got a senior counsel in and I think Fine Gael will just be hoping that this famous swing case disappears off the news headlines fairly soon. Uh, will it? I, I think it, it has run so long, Michael, it has taken on life its own. You're, you may now have seen uh, sketches and the mm. likes of Mario Rosenstock has been having great fun with it. It's always very dangerous when, when you become the, the subject of satire and uh, you know become almost a running joke. But the bigger issue for Fine Gael, I suppose, is they had championed themselves as people who would reform the cost of insurance for business, particularly, and because it's so high at the moment, and deal with compo culture. And then they have one of their own TDs involved in a personal injuries case, uh, taking it because she fell off a swing. And that has been so damaging for them. So I think they, the only way they can get out of it properly is to take more action on dealing with that compo culture and show that they are serious about it through their, their Minister Michael Darcy, who has been active, but I'm sure he must be tearing his hair out at, at this case, which has sort of mm. undermined so much the, the party standing on it. And extended beyond Maria Bailey in Fine Gael now because questions for Minister Josepha Madigan. That's right. Uh, it was her firm of solicitors, Madigan solicitors, who were advising um, um, Maria Bailey on the case. Um, Josephine Madigan has made no comment. She says there's a you know, client confidentiality between a, a lawyer and their client, which is correct. But it's politically awkward for her as well. Uh, I think, again, that's where the review will come in as a, as a shield for Fine Gael. They will say repeatedly... It's now a matter of review, and we can't comment until the review is finished. Mm. Um, I haven't heard a conclusion date for that review, but you can expect it to take, uh, I think, take a little while. Uh, are the Oroctors members satisfied with that, do you think? I, I think they, they will just be glad to, to, uh, to hopefully get it out of the way if they can at all. Um, I was in the ball, obviously, earlier this week when Heather Humphreys, the Minister for Business, mm. was being questioned about this matter. And she made very good comments about people having to be personal responsibility and not even if it was in the play yard. Um, so I think Fine Gael wants to put an end to that prospect of minister after minister condemning what had happened and expressing concern because it was just making the, the situation worse. Mm. Uh, but... Uh it seems as though there's no consequence if uh, the parliamentary party members are, are happy with how the party is handling it. Will the public be happy with it? it, it, it it's hard to tell, to be honest. I, I think for some of the public, if you're a business owner and you're paying a really high insurance premium contributed to by what you think was a bogus compensation claim by, by some person against you, then this will, I'm sure, infuriate you when you're, you're reading about a case like this. 
I think some of the public just see it as a as as a, a pure political comedy and mm. one of the silliest I have seen for a long time, and that's how they're engaging with it. So I think if you have those two different reactions, but it also came in the middle, of course, of the local and European elections, and and that was you know very unhelpful. It wasn't the reason why mm. uh, Fine Gael didn't uh, overtake Fianna Fáil as the largest party in local government. It's certainly uh, it's certainly bubbling around and 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 helped our case. Maybe it was added to by issues like housing or the health service, the children's hospital, or broadband uh, for that matter. And these are the type of issues that may feed into the by elections that are are now inevitable because of uh, the European election results. That's right, Michael. And there's continued speculation about whether we'll get standalone by-elections to replace the likes of Francis Fitzgerald, who's been elected for Fine Gael as an MEP in Dublin, and Billy Keller elected as an MEP for Fall in the Ireland South constituency. Mm. And there's a strong train of thought that Taoiseach Leo Radker might decide to go for an election in September and, and forget the need to hold several by-elections, which mm. people believe the government will lose every one of them and have its authority undermined so that he would just go for a general election in, in, in September. Yeah, it's a, a toss between what's bad and what's worse, is it not, though? Because uh, if uh, he faces the prospect of losing all of the by-elections, uh, I take it uh, it's a similar gamble in going for a general election that the fallout uh, could follow uh, in terms of a, a national vote. It absolutely is. And, and even though Fine Gael are, are doing their level best to present this election campaign as a, as a success, and certainly the, the incredible comeback of Deirdre Clune in, mm. uh, in Ireland South helps them with that narrative, it's still all one more council seats than them. The Greens took seats off them in places and, and took voters from them with the, the green side that was there. So it's not the best ground for Fine Gael to go into a general election uh, with with Brexit uncertainty, the only thing I'll mm. put against that is wait until January when when they would have to have the by elections called by then at the very latest. January is a month after Christmas. We're generally not in as good a mood as they are maybe in in late summer. So that they they're thinking of that as as maybe not a not a great time either. Mm. Uh, uh, try to stay with you. Uh, we're uh, struggling with the uh, reception there, uh, I think, Michael. Uh, but uh, you mentioned Brexit. Uh, perhaps uh, you could tell us a, a little bit about how that's going to feed into political thinking uh, because uh, the government will issue its uh, summer statement ahead of uh, the budget. And uh, I think the Minister Pascal Dunahoo has been talking about uh, a couple of scenarios. The amount of money he'd have, uh, generally speaking, uh, if there was an orderly Brexit and uh, the type of money which undoubtedly would be far less if... Uh, Britain was uh, to crash out of the European Union. That's right. There's there's a different Brexit scenarios for the government: an orderly Brexit, a hard Brexit, and so on. And um, obviously, Pascal Dunham's minister cannot uh, proceed with some of the plans and the tax cuts that he's been promising. If there's a crash out Brexit, that just will not be possible. And um, and I think. The election could be influenced by what happens again in Britain. If we have a hard Brexiteer Prime Minister like Boris Johnson, then you have uh, the real threat of a hard Brexit. And does the Taoiseach call a general election six weeks out from a a hard crash out Brexit? I think that would be very difficult. So, again, our 
our fate in our general election could very much be termed a lot by events across the water. Mm. Uh, no doubt uh, Fianna Fáil will hold firm in its position of not being seen, at least, to force an election. Yeah, they're, they're reasonably, if you could take that uh, constituency called Midland West out of the picture where they had a very bad performance in the European election, um, they're reasonably happy. If they've got uh, extra councillors, they have shown that Fine Gael can get into trouble over over uh, the broadband project and the National Children's Hospital. So Micheál Martin certainly is, is holding firm at the moment and saying not pulling the plug and it's up to the, the government to do it if they want. So I think they're, they're really happy where they are. Okay, no doubt uh, there's a, a, a lot of political minds uh, that are focusing on uh, the decision of uh, the Supreme Court yesterday and what it means for the working of uh, the Oireachtas and indeed Dáil committees for that matter. To say that the Public Accounts Committee acted unlawfully is a strong statement as you could expect from the highest court in the land. It is, and it completed a very bad week for, for the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou MacDonald, and the Independent Alliance Minister, Shane Ross. They were both on that public accounts committee that was quizzing Angela Kearns uh, back in 2014, and they were among the most criticised for, for some of the questions they posed to her. A real shame that, that effectively the public accounts committee in those hearings to the rules and pushed it too far because you know you've now got the courts ruling on their conduct and and leaving it open for any other witness in future to head down to the high courts and and challenge them i think that it's just a reminder for politicians they have to be very strict and fair in how they conduct inquiries because they're they are important if we're if we lose that right to have a, a committee inquiry, you're losing a, a very important part of democracy because as as you'll see with this Finnegan review and with the commission, they take months and years and, and uh, you know, are not always satisfactory. It's it's, it's vital to have that Oireachtas committee uh, having the power to bring people in and get quick answers. How bad a week or how bad have uh, the last few months been for Mary Lou MacDonald? Is her leadership in question? I think Sinn Féin have a, a tradition of playing the long game where they have decided they are doing this uh, leadership thing, done it from Jerry Adams to Mary Lou MacDonald, and I don't see any sign of, of any immediate change. don't tend to make very quick or hasty that can be to their disadvantage, but obviously to their advantage in other ways. So it's just very disappointing for her. She's dust herself down and so on. But I think she has to look at change. You know how the party approaches things, uh, the climate of anger that that helped them in 2014, the local and European elections, not there as much anymore, and they have to look at some new way of reaching out to more voters and getting transfers. If if, uh, if you know the final result isn't in there in Ireland South, but if their MEP there, Leonie, had attracted more transfers. There's no way Deirdre Clune is able to overtake her. But the Deirdre Clune proved more transfer-friendly and it looks like she's going to get the, the, the final seat because of that. OK, Michael, we'll leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Michael Brennan, political editor for the Sunday Business Post. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Plenty of reaction to the interview at the top of the show with um, Councillor Noel French from Trim in relation to antisocial behaviour. 
Uh, lots of people commenting. Liz says, I think parents should know where their children of six and seven are and should be responsible for them. Jack says the discipline has broken down. We live in times when anything goes. We've just seen the Greens doing well in the elections. But Michael, if we don't get back control of society, it won't be worth saving the mm. planet. Uh, the increase in antisocial behaviour all over Meath is a worry, says Caroline. You have to ask the parents' part in all of this. Is there supervision in the home anymore? Are young people being left alone because parents have no choice, the two of them but to work and often have a long commute and then you have children letting themselves into the house and nobody really there to look after them. We really need to look at the whole picture, says Caroline. Mm. Uh, Teresa phoned in and she says it's very sad to see how the youth of Trim are turning out and I'm sure it's not all of the youth Mm. either, we must say that. The parents should know what kids are up to. They need to be putting manners on their children. John phoned in and says, everything is far too PC nowadays, Michael. Years ago, if your child was out of order, you could give them a little slap. Now, you're not even allowed to do that. Very hard on parents. People are very very Mm. quick to criticise parents. But what support are parents being given? Okay, yeah, well, maybe there is uh, something in that. Uh, I suppose the other side of it is is that if uh, the children are acting unruly and in a way that's terrorising a community and the parents aren't acting on it, well, you'd have to ask yourself if the children themselves are being neglected, if they're being neglected to such a, a degree that they're not being brought up, if they're not being taught the difference between right and wrong, uh, perhaps uh, the risk is so great that there should be some sort of other intervention. Well, that's a, a fair point too. Um, Jack phoned in and Jack says that we need to be looking in communities and what extra activities are being provided for young people. He thinks that youth clubs are a very good way of distracting young teenagers by giving them somewhere to meet up and to interact with you know, their own age group. That sometimes there's a gap between mm children and then those that are eligible enough say 18 to go to discos that when they're 15, 16, 17 it's very hard often to find something for them to do. Okay well lots of thoughts on that. Uh, I'm sure lots of people uh, are questioning uh, how much young people are using uh, their phones uh, for that matter is something that we hear about quite a lot but uh, the reason I say that is because there's been some interesting comments uh, from uh, the Primate of All-Ireland, Archbishop Eamon Martin, not just about young people using their phones, but about him using his phone himself. He said that he tried to keep off his phone and his tablet for 12 hours a day during Lent, but he failed miserably. He was speaking in Leicester at Faith in the Cyber World Conference, and he also has asked parents not to feel pressurised into buying uh, smartphones for their children as presents following on from their communion. In other words, at around the age of eight, Laura Erskine, spokesperson with mummypages.ie, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Laura, and thanks for joining us. Uh, it seems very young for a child to be getting a smartphone. Absolutely. Uh, my own son made his Holy Communion uh, last year, and this was definitely a question that was being asked, and certainly children were succumbing 
to uh, peer pressure and indeed their parents to use either use their money, their Holy Communion money, which they felt they had a right to choose what they wanted to buy with it. Yeah. And parents then feeling that uh, that if every other child was getting one, that they didn't want their child to be left out. But getting a, a smartphone um, at age eight, which is typically the age that a child will make their Holy Communion, is entirely inappropriate. Mm. Uh, you know, in the same way that we wouldn't let a four-year-old cross the road on their own, we shouldn't let our children uh, aged eight onto the, the highways uh, of the internet. And, and that's that's as simple an analogy I, as I can make it. Mm. It is a, a world... Well, I think it's very much in line with the analogy uh, that the Archbishop uh, drew in relation to this. Uh, how, how much do uh, children tend to get for their Holy Communion these days? Uh, gosh, um, it's, it's anywhere in the region of between 200 and 500 euros. Mm. Um, the... the the amounts and can yeah. go significantly higher. It would be unusual but for somebody to give them 10 or 20 or 50 euro. Absolutely. Uh, the average mm. gift, according to our own Mummy Pages research, is 30 euro for a Holy Communion child. Mm. Um, and that's, uh, you know, when, when they've got a lot of relatives. Uh, and Well, you just need neighbors. 10 people to get 300 euro on average, don't you? You know, I mean, exactly. that's, that's exactly. up very quickly. So you, you have the money in your own pocket. It's your money and you want to buy a smartphone. Who's to tell you otherwise? That seems to be that attitude that uh, children have, uh, you're telling us, is it? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. That's exactly it, right. and they feel they they are they, that if it's their their money that they should be allowed to make the decision as to what they buy with it. But it's up to us as parents to uh, to teach them um, and to set boundaries uh, around what they purchase and and how much of the money that they spend. I mean, smartphones they're they're a gateway to a vast world mm. full of content that young eyes just shouldn't see and that they can't unsee. Um, and in the same way, we wouldn't let let a child watch um, you know an over eighteen. Uh, film on the television, we shouldn't allow them to see the content uh, that they can get exposed to on smartphones. And as much as we try as parents to limit that content through various uh, screen monitoring apps um, and, and you know, the use of, of the device settings, 
there are still ways that children as young as eight can Yeah, and it's not just that the kids are smarter than us uh, because it's the world that they're grown up in. Uh, There are people who are developing tools for them to use uh, to deceive parents. Uh, So uh, you're really up against uh, the odds. Uh, I think our generation used to joke with each other saying you still have your communion money, but the reality was that most of us never had our communion money, that it went straight to our parents or our parents put it away for us. Exactly. Uh, and that certainly was the case for me. Uh, mm. And it's an important time to teach children the value of money. Uh, and and it would be something that we would encourage parents to do to, to allow their children to spend a little, but to save a lot. And uh, do many young people like at that age, at seven, eight years of age, have their uh, own smartphones? Not many children do. So mm. parents should be aware that no matter what they're their children say uh, with regards how many other children in the class have a phone if you, you could very quickly join the, the class WhatsApp group and find out exactly how many children do and actually banding together as parents is, is a very a very good way uh, of making that decision easier for every other parent um, if, if every other child in the class doesn't have a smartphone and don't succumb to that pressure it's uh, very few children um, around age 8 have a smartphone, it tends to be age 12 when mm. children are joining they make their their confirmation and then they're going on to, to secondary school. And at that time, parents tend to allow children to have a smartphone, but, uh, but restrict access insofar as they can uh, and certainly limiting screen time at home, not allowing smartphones go to bed with the teen. And that's really important because mm. not only is it the content that we're trying to shield um, children from, but it's also this, you know, it's the, the selfie generation where they're so obsessed with how they look and how many likes they get and whether they're included in various social groups through their smartphone. And that's where bullying can take place and where um, a a tween or teen's mental health can be impacted. Yeah, and it's that individual perception uh, that people end up of themselves from taking selfies uh, and so on uh, that can have such a huge impact on people of all ages but particularly on very young people the Archbishop was talking about that selfie generation uh, and the speed of development on the internet and I I think whether you're Catholic or Christian or not I think there's a a lot of people who would uh, agree with what Eamon Martin was saying about the digital world and the implications uh, that it has on our contemporary understanding and use of key concepts like love, friendship, community, gathering solidarity with others, especially the vulnerable, versus this instant gratification culture of the selfie generation. That's exactly it. And it's something that we have to, to, to worry about um, because they become so obsessed with how liked they are in the digital world that they're not actually engaging in the real world and they don't know the value of true friendships. Because um, because it's all indicated by whether they get a, a love heart on a on a mm. post that they make. Are we ever uh, old enough to get a smartphone? I don't think so, and that's actually <laughs> you know? the real the yeah. real question. There are some. Yeah. There are probably some 10-year-olds who might be more responsible than some 20-year-olds when yes. it comes to the mm. use of a smartphone. So it's actually about developing resilience, knowing how mature your child is, and setting a lot of clear boundaries. And, and having a smartphone is a privilege. So if a child of any age abuses that privilege, then it gets taken away. But definitely, it's a lot easier to hold out on giving a smartphone in the first instance than it is in taking one away from a child who's misusing it. Mm. So if you can hold off on your 8-year-old getting a smartphone until they're 12 or 13, then that's the best advice. It's much more difficult to try and take it back from a child who you have given it to um, and all the all the repercussions there in terms of, of behaviour and mood and 
And, you know, it's it's something that uh, we need to teach our children that it's, it's it's not whether they want something; it's whether they need something. And um, certainly, when they're when they're joining secondary school, you may, as a parent, need to be able to contact your child. And it's very difficult mm. to, to find a phone these days that doesn't have smart capabilities. So, uh, and you don't want your child to be the only mm. one who is left out Striking of, the balance, of the social circle. It is exactly. all right, Laura. Thank you indeed uh, for joining thank us you. this morning. Uh, Laura Erskine is uh, the spokes mum with MummyPages.ie. Now back to more of your comments. I just have an observation Mm -hmm. to make in Mm -hmm. relation to that discussion, Michael, because when you were talking about how much the children get, Mm. it is the first communion season, as we know. And I came across a social media post only recently from someone wondering his nephew was making the first communion, wondering how much he gets to give. Mm. And there appears to be going rates uh, just from the response. It was like a tenner if it's a neighbour's child, 20 euro if it's a friend's child, 30 euro if it's a niece or nephew, or 50 euro if it's a godchild. So there you go. (laughs) Okay. So if you have a few godchildren, you're going to be fairly broke if there's a few of them making it. But anyway, Ray got in touch just regarding the smartphones mm. and the discussion. He, he knew we were covering it and he got in touch through the Facebook page and he says he thinks it's crazy to give a child a smartphone at eight years of age. But if that's what a parent chooses to do, who am I to stop them from doing it? Okay. That's his thoughts on All it. Right. We'd one or two, if I have time, I'll go to one more just in relation to the European elections. Uh, John phoned in and he says, when you look at what's going on in the South in relation to the European elections, is there an argument, Michael, for going back to electronic voting? It'll be ridiculous if it takes a month for that count to be finished. And that's, of course, yeah. because there's a recount, isn't there? Well, that's it. Yeah, I know people don't like it, but I, I uh, think there is an argument for it. Uh, I'm sure I'm uh, a lone voice in, in that. Uh, myself and and, uh, Ray, was it? Yes. Okay. Well, no, 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 that oh, was John. Ray John, was about sorry, the smartphone. Okay. Yes, yes. All right. Thanks, uh, John. Thanks, everybody who has been in touch. Uh, thanks to Marie for bringing us uh, those calls and comments this morning. And if you'd like to add to us being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to the latest uh, gangland killings and uh, the ongoing gangland feud in Drogheda. The doll was told yesterday that uh, the affected communities deserve better, which in Fain asking what the government is going to do about them. We'll hear just very briefly a little bit of what the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar had to say in response. And I want to uh, share um, with the House uh, our uh, collective revulsion uh, at the uh, killings that have happened uh, in different parts of Dublin and also in Drogheda in recent weeks. Uh, and to express uh, solidarity with the communities in which um, these killings have happened. Uh, This is a matter which Cabinet discussed on Monday night uh, at the specific request of Minister McGrath, who represents um, uh, Darndale and Coolock as part of his constituency, and also Minister Bruton. Uh, The Minister of Justice spoke with the Garda Commissioner about the matter today, uh, and also the Minister of Justice intends to visit the area, uh, and I will do the same as soon as I can find, find a little bit of time. People who live in, in the northeast inner city, in Darndale, in Drada, in Cordoff, in my own constituency, are good people, hard-working people, and they need to know, and they have a right to feel safe in their homes 
and in their own communities. And I think we all uh, share in that sentiment. Taoiseach Leo Vratker was responding uh, to Sinn Féin TD, David Cullinan, who joins us now. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for taking the time to speak to us here on uh, the programme this morning. You were suggesting to the Taoiseach yesterday that people in Darndale, Coolock and indeed in Drogheda are great communities, but that the people are, are living in fear and that they deserve better. Uh, I, I don't think there was any argument from Leo Vratker. No, and first of all, I want to welcome the Taoiseach's response. Uh, first of all, his commitment to come and visit those communities, I think, is important. I think he genuinely has to come and listen to those who are working on the front line, which includes local members of Angarda Siakana. And by the way, local Gardaí in Drogheda and elsewhere have done very good work in recent times in terms of uh, finding drugs and, and dealing with some of these gangs to the best of their ability. Uh, but when you talk to senior guards who are in command in these areas, they will concede that they don't have the resources and the capacity that they need. The overall guard numbers is still down on the, the 2009 figures. We had four, 14,547 Gardaí nationally uh, in 2009. We now have 14,160, which is 387 less and that's with a growing population. So obviously there is a, a huge issue in relation to resources. We have local drug task forces, which were decimated also from 2009, and those resources need to be put back into those communities so that the type of responses that the Taoiseach was talking about yesterday and he acknowledged are then put in place because it isn't just about empathy and acknowledging that communities are, are good because obviously they are and the vast, vast majority of people who live in those communities are decent people who are really horrified uh, at what's happening, especially in Dublin, in, in Coolock and, and places like that in Darndale, where people are genuinely living in fear. And I know in, in, in Drogheda as well, uh, likewise, when these killings are taking place and we've had far too many people killed, injured, maimed because of what are feuds between gangs. And I think it's important that the state has the capacity and the will to challenge and take on these gangs and uh, and put people behind bars very, very quickly. Uh, it, it seems as though retaliation or further retaliation is expected in the latest space of killings. Yes, and I think it's also important as well for politicians to acknowledge that dealing with gangs is very complex. And I think it would be very simplistic for any politician to point that on Garda Corner or even the government and government agencies and, and simply say not enough has been done. Mm. Uh, at the end of the day, these are people who have an intent to go out and kill people and they have to take primary responsibility, those people who are involved in these uh, gangs. Uh, and it is very complex. I think we all know that. There is no simple solution. But then when you examine the facts in relation to the resources and the capacity, I think it is really genuinely important now that when the Taoiseach uh, comes to these communities, and I hope he does visit Drogheda, and I'm sure he will visit those communities in Coolock and, and Darndale, that he talks to people also on the ground, those community groups who are on the front line supporting communities, the drug task forces which have been decimated, the local community policing forums where these issues have been raised ad nauseum by local councillors, by local politicians, and listen and then act and, and put in place the resources because we have to look at where these issues are more prevalent and then put more capacity in. And, and I hope that yeah. we will see extra resources come into Drogheda and other communities to ensure that 
the high rate of uh, uh, killings and, and the activities of, of these gangs are interrupted as best we can. Some people and would say that there are simple solutions uh, that you could create a, a police state if you like. I mean if you come to the likes of Drogheda I think half the people in the town could not only name the individuals involved but could point them out to you and tell them, tell you where they live. They might even have their telephone number or whatever the case is or tell you how you find them on Facebook uh, or give you evidence of what has happened uh, and they will say to you just lock them up. Well, it's 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 never as simple as just saying people mm. should be locked up. They have to be arrested. Uh, they have to be brought before the courts. Mm. There has to be a trial. They have to be found guilty. But what I would say is that I have no sympathy whatsoever for people who are involved in gang crimes. Mm. So I'm somebody who believes that the full rigour of the law and all of the resources of the state should be used to uh, bring real heat on these individuals as best we can. I know, I but uh, what I'm saying is that there are people who would argue that the law is too easy and that we need draconian laws and that we need like the likes of internment and the use of the special criminal court and things like that. Well, I don't think internment has worked anywhere in the world and I don't think internment is is what's needed. You can overreact to these situations and actually create more problems than you solve. I think what we need to do is to listen to the people who are tasked with arresting these people, which is on Garda Síochána. So before we look at draconian solutions, we need to listen to those who are on the front line, who are calling for the resources that they say they need. Give them the resources, give them the equipment, give them the tools to be able to arrest people because I'm, I'm also somebody who believes in due process and obviously you need to make sure that uh, it isn't what we had in the north for example yeah, in the yeah. past and, and what we had in other parts of the world which never works where, where you have uh, internment without trial I don't think yeah. that would be a realistic runner at all yeah. and I don't think that's necessary what's necessary is that we manage and we pull together the resources of the state to target these individuals but what, what I will say is that we can be tougher on these individuals. Because we can uh, apply we more make. resources and uh, I, I'm sure you're right but there are others uh, who would feel otherwise uh, but uh, there's no doubt that the people we're talking about the criminals involved in all of this are fearless. Uh, do you believe that they're fearless because they're nutters or do you believe that they're fearless because they believe there's nothing to be afraid of? I think it's a combination of things and I, I'm, I'm always struggling to understand where these individuals come from uh, to be honest because it's, it's, it's just incomprehensible to me that you would uh, treat your own community like this and you would be involved in these level of crimes. And it's also self-defeating because how many of these individuals are top dogs in, in their gangs one week and the next week they find themselves shot dead themselves? So uh, for anyone listening to this programme, young people, this is not a life that uh, is uh, it's made out to be in, in, in the movies and uh, in programmes like Love, Hate and, and mm. that type of lifestyle. This is an awful existence, I would imagine, for many people behind the scenes in those uh, communities, especially. Well, there is no and existence if the green grass is growing over you. Exactly, and I think that uh, that message needs to get across, and that's why, again, talking to people on the front line, many young people who maybe don't have any hope uh, in some of these communities are turned to crime for all sorts of different reasons. But when people are hardened criminals, uh, I take a view, I have no time whatsoever for these individuals. I have no problem whatsoever with serious cracking down by the guards, serious heat being brought on these individuals. If that means extra surveillance and checks and really coming down hard on them, that's what needs to be done. What about legalising drugs? 
Well, all of these things are, are issues that people have different opinions on, uh, Michael. I, I don't believe that is the solution either, um, because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it isn't just about the illegality of drug uh, dealing and the fact that, uh, you know, there's criminal gangs that profit from it. It's also the health consequences of, of drug taking. Uh, and people lose their lives also, heroin addicts and, mm-hmm. and cocaine addicts and, and people who lose their lives because they take drugs. Uh, so I don't think that making it easier for people to harm themselves is also the solution. That's the point I made earlier on, that none of this is, is easy and none of this is simple. And collectively as a society, we have to face up to lots of different things. And there's going to be a range of different opinions from extreme views of ones you articulated, such as internment, to legalizing drugs. What we need to do is listen, as I said, to people who work in those communities, and they have to be put first. And that is local community development projects, drug awareness projects, local drug task forces, Angarishi Econa, local politicians. Give them the resources that they need. And before we look at draconian solutions, I think the obvious thing we should do is to support all of those groups uh, that are trying on the front line to do their best to support uh, communities who are genuinely in fear because of what's happening. Okay, uh, before you leave us, uh, can I just ask you very quickly about the elections? Not the best of elections for Sinn Fein. A sigh of relief, uh, I take it, with Matt Carty being elected. And are you still clinging on to hope in Ireland South? Well, where there's life, there's hope. So we have uh, a recount in Ireland South. Uh, what I'll say overall is that there is no point in sugarcoating what was uh, a bad election for the party. And I'm very disappointed, personally, as somebody who is very passionate about the politics of Sinn Féin. I think this is a setback, obviously, for the party. We have to face up to that fact, Michael. We have to face up to the fact that we lost many good people. Those people are genuine councillors uh, and MEPs like Lynn Boyle and many of the councillors in your own area who lost their seats. I feel for each and every one of them. Uh, we don't have time, nor should we feel sorry for ourselves. The electorate are never wrong. Uh, we simply didn't motivate enough people to vote for us. We have to be big enough to accept that. And we have to now go back into those communities and listen and talk to uh, our base and our communities as to why they didn't vote for us in the numbers that they did. And there's, there could be many reasons for it. Some people who voted for us in the past didn't vote for us this time. Some people may not have come out and vote. Uh, but whatever the reason, we have to find out very quickly because I believe that uh, communities that we in Sinn Féin represent need Sinn Féin. They need a party that will stand up for the interests of ordinary working people and hard-working families and uh, I certainly will continue to do my best and, and there's examples across the state where the party held its vote very strongly in, in Waterford, uh, in uh, in Donegal, in Monaghan and, and parts of Dublin as well so it wasn't all bad, but overall, it's a disappointing result for the party. Okay. Thanks for joining us this morning. David Cullinan, Sinn Féin TD, and his party spokesperson on Foreign Affairs. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Our four local MEPs have uh, been elected, as you know. Luke Ming Flanagan uh, was second past uh, the post with almost 122,000 votes, exceeding uh, the quota. The uh, second uh, MEP to exceed uh, the quota, and uh, just two of them doing that. Uh, Matt Carthy was also returned to, to the European Parliament, and Maria Walsh of Finnegale has also been elected. Uh, let's talk with Ming now. Good morning to you and congratulations indeed. Good morning to you Michael and uh, thanks very much for the congratulations and 
very importantly, uh, thanks so much to the people of Loud and Mead for giving me a substantial vote and helping me across the line. Were you ever concerned? Uh, there was uh, some questions, I think, being raised uh, about as to whether you would be re-elected. Um, well, look, at, uh, I canvassed uh, 148 towns. Uh, I canvassed for 44 days in a row. Uh, called into about three and a half thousand businesses, uh, met in and around between fifteen and twenty thousand people, and uh, during that time, uh, I got uh, one message, and that message was that uh, we want you returned as an MEP after May the twenty fourth, and uh, that's the result that came about. Mm. Whatever about uh, exit polls or anything like that. Uh, in fairness to the exit polls, uh, the exit polls, uh, the people who do the exit polls, idea of a success exit poll is that it's within plus or minus 4.4% and I'll have to give Red Sea that it was between plus or minus 4.4% but sorry Red Sea, that isn't worth the damn to anyone because it doesn't tell you anything. And I I think you ran a a very strong campaign. You put yourself forward as an independent alternative candidate with alternative attitudes uh, towards European issues than the establishment parties. But are are you surprised that Fine Gael got a a second seat and that Fianna Fáil probably would have got a seat if you were to combine the votes of Peter Casey uh, and Rabbit and Brendan Smith? Well, uh, I think one of the reasons why Fianna Fáil didn't get a seat is... uh, I didn't see any policies for the European Union out of them during the whole campaign. All I heard, and we heard it again on the debate uh, the day before Poland Day, was uh, what Fianna Fáil thought about myself, what they thought about Matt Carthy, what they thought about Leo Varadkar, and how we were all absolutely terrible lot of people, but we didn't hear anything about their policies. We still don't know... Uh, where exactly they stand on convergence and the uh, taking money away from people who are getting massive single farm payments and putting it back into the small family farm. We don't really know where they stand on uh, the European army because uh, they were planning on joining a group uh, that is going home in favour of the European army. So I would say uh, the big problem that Trina Fall had, it wasn't uh, anyone mm. else entering the field, it was the fact that even now we still don't know what their policies are. You don't think that their vote was split with Peter Casey effectively being a third Fianna Fáil candidate? Well, uh, look at, uh, if you look at uh, the tallies uh, uh, at, at the, in the count centre in Castle Bar, on the first day of the count, uh, I assembled a team of people with the help of Marion Harkin that uh, uh, tallied uh, in and around uh, 20,000 of those number one votes. And you can see quite clearly that uh, Fianna Fáil, not only did they get uh, a very, very low first preference, they were actually less uh, uh, transfer-friendly than Sinn Féin, less transfer-friendly than uh, any of the candidates mm. in the field. Whereas uh, if you look at uh, uh, where I was getting transfers from, according to my tallies, and they turned out to be fairly accurate, I got oh, uh, in and around 13% of Mairead McGuinness's transfers. Uh, if Peter Casey's votes had been distributed, which gives light to the idea that they would have went for Fianna Fáil if he wasn't in the field. 27% of Peter Casey's transfers were coming in my direction. Uh, the Green Party, uh, in and around, according to our figure, 19.2%. And uh, uh, the, the reality is, in a 
in a, in a, a voting system like we have in Ireland, uh, you need transfers. Fianna Fáil neither got number one votes nor did they get transfers. So they're going to have to have a good look at themselves. But I'll say it again, we don't know what their policies are. That's what okay. an election is meant to be about. Uh, what about uh, the campaign overall? Uh, if you look at, at Peter Casey, uh, who came fairly close, uh, and Maria Walsh, uh, who he has... didn't actually come fairly close, Michael. Okay. Uh, let's be honest about it. Uh, um, he was 20,000 votes short of sure. uh, 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 fourth place. And some people were suggesting up until a day ago, and if anyone had a good look, at the tallies and a good look at the number one votes mm. that somehow he was close to me. He was 40,000 yeah, But he still got, he still got close on 80,000 votes uh, and, uh, and I mean I'm not challenging what you're saying in any way at all but I'm asking about the campaign and what people are thinking or how they're casting their vote these days because Peter Casey ran his campaign on an anti-immigration platform this time around and an anti-traveller uh, platform last time around. Maria Walsh, uh, is that establishment uh, you've put yourself up as an alternative to with European Army and other policies uh, that uh, you say Fidegale are pursuing? But uh, a lot of people would also say that her uh, campaign was glossy, gimmicky uh, and low on substance. Uh, what d- does that say about the electorate and our attitude towards voting uh, people into office? Well, people in an election uh, vote for people for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons they vote for them is because they know they are actually a candidate in the first place and they get to hear about them. And you should, all you have to do is look at the amount of coverage that uh, Maria Walsh, and good luck to her, she's now an MEP, but the amount of coverage that Maria Walsh got in comparison to a candidate like Saoirse McHugh, who basically got four and a half minutes to talk on national television. And uh, I firmly believe that if she had got more time, if she had got an equal amount of time to Maria Walsh or that other individual that you speak about, she would now be an MEP. But I found this an extraordinary election from the point of view of the media, uh, the mainstream media, the large national newspapers who went into this election saying that this is a serious election and uh, what you call it, it's the most important European election Mm. in years. Yes, Uh, From a personal point of view, and uh, I let the other candidates talk for themselves, on no occasion did I get to do an interview with the Irish Independent, the Irish Examiner or the Irish Times. In the last election, as far as I can see, there was nearly a full page interview with every candidate. Not once did that happen. Our national radio, uh, RT Radio 1, throughout the whole campaign, I was on that radio station on zero occasions. And uh, the reality is uh, uh, certain candidates got big exposure and got elected because of it. I didn't get big exposure of them. I got elected anyway because I've cut out the middleman through social media and local radio. But uh, people like Saoirse McHugh or Olive O'Connor, who would also have made a brilliant MEP, didn't get any coverage. So the big media companies are the gatekeepers to democracy. But for some people, they had the gate shut and they had them blocked. And for other uh, candidates, every second question that they asked people was, what's your opinion on that candidate? 
you know. So, mm-hmm. of course, they're going to do better than people who don't get exposure or people uh, at, at, at the sure. end of the day. So, uh, add it all together and we end up with Maria Walsh uh, as an MEP. Hopefully, she'll do well because she's going to have to do well. And one of the positives of having, having her there is uh, she's from County Mayo and she will provide a counterbalance to uh, on the uh, on issues in relation to agriculture to what Mairead McGuinness does because Mairead McGuinness abstained on a vote uh, to give uh, even payments to all farmers right across the country and um, uh, this lady is from Mayo if she does that well then she's taken money and uh, food out of the mouths of the people in her own county What do you think went wrong for uh, Sinn Féin? Um, I don't know. I have to say mm. I was surprised um, uh, from the point of view of their MEPs. I mean, I look at the work of Leon Arida on the Fisheries Committee mm. and I have to say I think she's brilliant on it. I look at Lynn Boylan in uh, Dublin and uh, I see the work that she's done in the Environment Committee and she's done a brilliant job. And I wouldn't say that now unless mm. I actually thought that. I've watched them work mm. and uh, I have to say I'm shocked they didn't take a seat. But there were uh, a new candidates it's in the field, people like Mick Wallace yep. and Claire Daly, yep. who maybe, as we say in bog terms, were schlaining out of the same bank and basically there wasn't seats uh, for them all. But well, there'll be a bit of a reunion in Brussels now, won't there, in September? Because uh, it's a while since, since uh, you sat uh, alongside Mick Wallace and Claire Daly in Leinster House. I, I gather you're delighted uh, that they've been elected. Yeah, I'm. Uh, listen, uh, I am absolutely over the moon. I never thought I'd get to sit in an elected chamber with these two fine people ever again. And now that is going to be the case. And it means that at the, uh, for the last five years, out of the 24 committees in the European Parliament, I was able to cover, eventually, when I get my head around how the whole thing worked, eventually able to cover maybe about five or six of them in detail. Uh, this means that, uh, with these two people also coming out, that we will be able to cover maybe 15 or 16 committees in the European Parliament and uh, be able to steer things in the right direction, or what we believe is the right direction mm. uh, for Ireland, uh, with a little bit more accuracy than I would have in the first term. All right, well, as I say, there will probably be a fine reunion in Brussels when uh, the three of you take up your seats, uh, but maybe there'll be uh, a reunion before then. Uh, you know the way the song goes, it's a, a long way uh, from here to Clare, and indeed, I take it you'll be in Doombeg next week. Um, uh, no, um, uh, I won't be in Doombeg. Uh, um, uh, I think uh, the, the best way to uh, protest against certain individuals is to ignore them. Oh, yes, and, you did uh, say don't, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't mm-hmm. give them any attention because uh, there's one thing would break this man's heart uh, uh, no more than... There's one thing uh, would delight this man, I think, and that is there's a whole lot of people down there screaming and shouting at him and going, uh, giving, him, giving, giving the, mm-hmm. the world's media something to cover if there was no one turned up and we had it nice and silent. I think uh, that it's Send him a stronger mm, I message. I remember you talking about tumbleweed rolling down the street. All right. All right, Ming. Listen, congratulations uh, again, as I say, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning uh, on thought of uh, being returned to, to the European Parliament. Uh, that's independent MEP Luke Ming Flanagan. Michael Reed on LMFM. More women than ever before have been elected councillors. Over 200 women have been voted into office, or about 23% of those who have been elected. This is according to the National Women's Council of Ireland, but 
it's nowhere near enough and uh, gender quotas should be introduced for local elections according to the Women's Council. Catherine Lane is a Women in Local Government and Development Officer for the National Women's Council of Ireland and she joins us now. Good morning to you Catherine and thanks for joining us. Uh, it is progress uh, but uh, the pace of progress is too slow you say. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Yes, uh, we have seen an increase uh, in the representation of women uh, after the local elections over the weekend. We welcome that. It was 21%. We're now looking at, as you said there, about 23.8%. So uh, an increase, a slight increase, not enough, uh, we believe. So we believe the time has come to uh, take serious action and introduce concrete measures to increase representation of women at local level. We saw back in March the Department of Housing, Planning and Local mm-hmm. Government and Minister John Paul Phelan introduced uh, incentives and softer measures to try and encourage and uh, incentivise parties to, to increase the number of women that they were putting on the ticket. And in percentage uh, and terms, it's pretty much in line with national politics, with the doll, isn't it, which I think has about uh, 22%. 22%, yeah. Right. Of, of TVs we, we, who are female. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we saw at national level in 2016 with the introduction of gender quotas a, a real strong increase when they were introduced from 16% to 22%. So we've seen that they, they, do, they do work. Um, so that's why we believe that we, that needs to happen at local level. And again, when we look at the women that are representing us representing us uh, in the doll, mm. over 80% of those female TDs have come through local government. So it's vital if we're to see an increase at national level that we are seeing that increase at local level as well. And that quota is going to increase to 40% in 2023. So we really need uh, a strong cohort and increase of women there who can go forward then as uh, TDs in the next all as well. Do women want to stand, Catherine? Well, we can see just looking at uh, the number of women that did run, 566 women ran for the local elections. Uh, we know like in Loud there, 14 women ran in Meath. There was 28 women that, mm. that ran. So we, there's definitely not a lack of interest there. Women want to be involved we know already they're involved in many different ways in local communities. Uh, they play diff- different roles. They make huge contributions. But we need to see them. We need to see them more visible uh, in our decision-making structures in the, the city and county chambers. We're delighted uh, that so many women ran. We pay tribute to the women that, that did run, run. And we congratulate the women that got elected as well uh, this year. So uh, we're, we're delighted about that, that increase. But in certain areas, it's still very low. There's a huge disparity when we look at urban areas and rural areas, and some of the counties are still faring quite yeah. poor in terms of that representation. Women do make up over 50% uh, of the population, so we want to see them represented, and we want to see that 30% critical mass we saw that in terms of the numbers that the, the parties ran, the bigger parties didn't meet that 30% uh, in terms of the, the women that they ran. So that, that's where we believe the quotas could have a, a, a strong impact in terms of candidate selection. We know that, that that is one of the issues, one of the barriers to equal representation of women in politics. We have other things as well, the, the five Cs, we've called them the cash, culture, the confidence care and the candidate selection. So that's where the quotas can tackle that issue. So it's about making sure that voters have a greater choice as well in, in terms of when they are putting their mark on the ballot uh, paper. And when you say confidence, uh, do you mean uh, confidence for women themselves to run or confidence for people to vote in women if they run? Because uh, if it's uh, the latter, I take it there's no confidence in female candidates in County Offaly, for example, where they've selected all men. 
Yeah, well, in County Off, we have two women who have, uh, because there, there was no women before, but we now have two women who were selected to represent Offaly. So that's very positive, that's very welcome, mm. but it, it's not near uh, in terms of parity of representation. Um, we know in this election, there was a high number of uh, candidates were incumbents, so they were sitting councillors, and that does give you an advantage. So it is very difficult to break in as a new candidate uh, against uh, running against somebody who obviously is, is known and has a track record. So, so that is a challenge, I think, in terms of getting new voices, especially women's voices, into local politics. Mm. So we believe that local democracy, it's an unfinished democracy um, where really women can't afford to wait uh, for that slow incremental change. You know, if we're looking at maybe 2% every five years, it's going to take us quite a time before we even reach the 30%. So uh, democracy can't wait at local level. Women can't wait, wait at local level. So that's why we believe at central government level, they need to take leadership on this issue. Um, we believe it can be done and, and uh, introduced through the introduction uh, and the setting up of electoral commission. And that kind of a commission could oversee uh, a lot of things to do with our, our current, how we run elections, mm. even in terms of finding out the information for, in terms of voter education experience. You know, people will say it's quite difficult to actually find out who is running in their area. Now, thankfully, a lot of media outlets uh, like yourselves, local media outlets and at national level, they do provide that information. Um, political geographers, Adrian Cavanagh has been very good in terms of documenting that, but that needs to be done in a, in a central place by the government um, mm. to, to increase voter turnout, to increase voter education, and it could also manage how uh, gender quotas could be introduced at a local you're, level. You're talking about uh, increasing the number of elected women by 40, 50%, thereabouts, going from 23.8% to 30%. Yes, that's, that's what we would like to see at a minimum, that we need to see 30% critical mass of women across all of the local, uh, local authorities. Mm in Ireland so um, not just on you know because the average is there currently 23.8% is what we have now but that is you know significantly lower in a lot of counties mm. especially uh, in Ulster and Connacht uh, there, there is huge disparities there so we really need to tackle that and we really need to understand what, what uh, are the particular barriers for women in rural, more rural communities as well, maybe there, where there's smaller constituencies, there's fewer seats there, mm. it's harder then to get onto the ticket. Uh, obviously, there's issues around uh, the role of the councillor as well in terms of the huge responsibility that that brings, um, the, in terms of having enough income to be able to do that, as yeah. you know, and to manage another mm-hmm. job while you're doing that. We see, you know, a lot of young people not represented in our local councils as well. So it does need a shift in terms of how it's running at the moment to attract uh, women and other underrepresented groups that are not visible. Um, and to say as well that we, mm. we were delighted that uh, in Meath we've had the first black woman elected uh, yeah. to Navan mm. County Council, mm. Yemi, who's a yeah. former mm. uh, board member of the National Women's Council. Mm. Um, so that's hugely significant, uh, I think, and, uh, for uh, women, for girls in that local community. I think we'll be hearing a lot from Yemi over the course of the next five years and uh, even past that, uh, for that matter. I have to leave it there for the moment, though, Catherine, and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Catherine Lane, Women in Local Government and Development Office for the National Women's Council of Ireland brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
MFM Podcasts. Brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union, where dreaming of warmer climates becomes a reality with a Cartmacross Credit Union holiday loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or cartmacrosscu.ie. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.